Okay, hello and welcome everyone to the Poplar Tapes. Uh, my name is Keegan Irish and uh, I'm here with uh, Alex Edwards. Hey everybody. And uh, today we're going to be talking about the Bernie Sanders bid for the nomination for the Democratic Party in 2020. We're going to be uh, just sort of breaking down uh, what happened during the campaign, uh, specifically uh, from kind of like a strategic perspective rather than going through like race by race or anything like this. We want to look at the general strategy that the campaign took. And I think that this conversation is going to be really interesting and we hope you'll get something out of it. Um, you know, if you're committed to uh, some form of left politics, you know, it's worthwhile thinking about what happened during this campaign, what worked and uh, what did not. Right. So, yeah. yeah so uh, I, I want to emphasize that <laughs> Bernie is still in the race and right now we are going to attempt to do an autopsy of something that isn't entirely dead yet. Uh, and so I do want to <laughs> emphasize that we're in medias res uh, right now. However, so that's to say it's still possible. It's kind of like theoretically possible that Bernie could win. But I mean, even if he did at this point, it would be something of a historical accident, uh, if we can call it that, given the situation of the global pandemic of the coronavirus right now and so um you know yeah and all the uh the memes right now saying that joe biden is actually dead <laughs> yes so yeah. we're dealing with a lot of corpses right now so you know uh yeah, a lot of ghosts uh, <laughs> that's right a lot of specters um but so you know keep that in mind as we go through this but uh what i i want to frame this as I'm just going to call it what went wrong, uh, failures and lessons of the Bernie campaign. And, you know, I mean, even if he does end up winning, something still went seriously wrong, right? And so it is, it's still worth trying to figure out what that is. We need to get the diagnosis right if we want to be able to get the prescription right. Okay, so that's to say we have to understand what the failures were if we want to understand what the lessons are that we should take from that so we can put them into practice. So, all right, so in the first part of the episode, we're going to focus, as Keegan said, on electoral politics and what the Bernie campaign could and should have done better. After that, uh, we're going to take a step back, as Keegan said, and <laughs> sort of question the viability of electoral politics itself as an avenue for the left to gain power. I mean, especially given what we've seen place, uh, take place in the United States and the United Kingdom this year. Um, so, you know, the suggestion there is like maybe we need to focus a, perhaps less on, on electoral politics and more on building uh, social power, like independent of the two-party yeah. system in the U.S. or the three-party system in Canada. Uh, you know, we kind of need to do both, but it's important for us as a movement to contemplate not only like what we're doing, but the way that we're doing it. Okay, well, I was just, you know, with that, I'm just going to begin. Do you have uh, any comments on that, or should I move forward? Yeah, yeah. just mm -hmm. uh, I think it will be 
worthwhile to raise the question of strategy in such a way that it isn't completely confined to um, these kind of, for lack of a better term, bourgeois elections, right? And uh, especially where we've really seen this like consolidation, this hard consolidation of a a real kind of like far right, um, extreme fascistic type of power, you know, in the United States and uh, in the United Kingdom. And I think if we look back over the kind of neoliberal era as a whole, uh, from the 1980s mm. uh, until today, mm-hmm. the left has really, really struggled to gain meaningful uh, power electorally. And uh, even the kind of what appeared as electoral victories at the time often turned out to be nothing of the sort. You know, I think like for many people, uh, myself included, or like people listening who um, grew up and sort of came to political consciousness really um, during the Iraq war and then saw Barack Obama mm-hmm. come to power mm-hmm. in 2008. The financial you know, crisis. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, this uh, this sort of looked like it was a potential moment for a left victory. Mm-hmm. And I think when we look back on that now, a lot of us realize that wasn't really the case at all. You know, like while Ob- Obama was the sort of distinguished statesman and was this, uh, you know, excellent kind of face uh, for U.S. empire as though it were progressing, mm-hmm. um, when we kind of get into the nitty-gritty of what took place during his campaign, you know, we're talking about more deportations than any historical president. We're talking about, his like, robust... Yeah. Ex- mm-hmm. yeah. Um, we're talking about robust uh, expansion of the drone program, uh, th- like, these kind of things. So the kind of sense that that was a salvific moment turned out to be, like, a mirage, a right? Mistake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Turned out to be a mistake. That's right. Um, and all right, so I mean, what we've seen since <laughs> since Obama left office, what have we seen? We saw Trump take power. <laughs> okay, and this is really something that the left is going to have to face at some point. Uh, you know, why was it that after eight years of the Obama administration, people were fed up enough to vote for a, you know, right wing populist? shading into evil clown territory, okay? And and especially, uh, you know, in terms of his initial response to the coronavirus and so forth, I mean, we're seeing that dynamic very clearly these days. But I'm going to use, so let me use uh, that reference to right-wing populism as a segue to move into my kind of introductory comments here. So something I I think we should accept Um, and I'm going to argue for this in a second, but is that (laughs) Bernie Sanders, to some crucial degree, is a left-wing populist, whereas Donald Trump is a right-wing populist. There are other things, right? But um, I just kind of want to emphasize that at the outset, because I think that populism is the future of American politics, at least in the near future. So the lesson we should take from Bernie's failure, so far at any rate, so the lesson we should take from that is not, 
I believe, that, you know, the American people aren't ready for a left-wing populist, and they really just, you know, want another neoliberal technocrat to take charge and be, you know, be a competent manager of of the American empire and so forth. Um, yeah. That's like a conclusion that you might be, that's like an inference you might draw from the from the failure of the Bernie campaign, right? And I think that's precisely the wrong inference. So, um, and in fact, I think <laughs> the solution is not that we should move away from populism, but rather that we should go full populist, as it were, where Bernie himself wasn't willing to or able to. So let me let me explain what I mean by that. <laughs> okay, uh, that's kind of like my overall contention that we 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 kind of need to lean into the populism at this point instead of uh, moving away from it. So I just read a book called uh, Populism: A Very Short Introduction, uh, which is written in 2017 uh, by a certain uh, Mud and Kaltwasser. I am not sure I'm pronouncing this correctly, but uh, there are two scholars. And so in this, it's a very helpful and interesting little book. Uh, I'm not sure I agree with like all of its, uh, I guess you could call them normative arguments, but they, but, uh, they provide a really interesting definition of populism. So I'm just going to present that, uh, say a few things about it, and then uh, we can just move into the various points I have for like what could and should have been done better by the, by the Bernie campaign. So they define populism as, quote, a thin-centered ideology that considers society to be ultimately separated into two homogenous and antagonistic camps, the pure people versus the corrupt elite, and which argues that, uh, that politics should be an expression of the volonté générale, the, the general will. Of the people, that's kind of like a technical term from Rousseau. Uh, you know, he talks about the the general will versus the will of all, where you know the, the will of all is just this kind of like sum total of individual preferences <laughs> or like aggregated net interest, uh, as opposed to uh, the common good as something that isn't just reducible to the kind of sum total of everybody's individual um, preferences. Uh, okay, so we don't really have to get into that territory, I think, to kind of explain what they mean here. So they point out that, so they're calling it a thin-centered ideology, uh, as opposed to a thick-centered, and so this is somewhat, like, academic terminology, but what I think this means is that it is a very vague ideology that requires other ideologies to latch onto. So you can't just be a populist, right? You have to be like uh, a left-wing populist, which tends to have kind of maybe socialist principles. Uh, or you can be a right-wing populist. Uh, you have like uh, nationalist principles or something, right? So, but the idea is that there's some distinction between the people and the elite defined on various grounds, right? So Bernie Sanders talks about, and since since Occupy Wall Street, we talk about the 1% versus the 99%, right? Or the 1% <laughs> the of 1% or so forth. And that is a way of drawing this distinction between the people and the elite on economic grounds, right? 
just purely economic grounds. Whereas certain right-wing populists might uh, define it uh, like on ethnic grounds, right? Where the where like the real Americans, right, are are so and so. Whereas you know the elite are whoever, and you know they're the elites, yeah yeah the, the liberal know, like technocracy, and it's and it's the liberals and so yeah, and they're protecting yeah. the immigrants against the real people and so forth, right? So there's different ways of of drawing that distinction, or rather different grounds on which you can draw that distinction. And I guess the last thing I'll mention is that, you know, in terms of uh, defining this distinction on ethnic grounds, it's not like only right-wing populists do that. If you look at Evo Morales in Bolivia, for example, you have the mestizo versus... Okay, so there's left-wing ways of drawing that distinction on on ethnic grounds as well. But their point there is that populism is just this kind of vague ideology that requires what they call a host ideology that, you know, provides the different grounds uh, on which we draw this distinction between the elite and the people, and then also this focus on the popular will. So when Bernie was still the front runner and it was the, this issue arose of whenever, when all the people, when all the candidates on stage were asked uh, whether they will support the person who has a plurality of the delegates at the uh, Democratic convention in July, there's this kind of famous moment where everybody except Bernie said, not necessarily, <laughs> right? Um, whereas Bernie was basically, he, he said, uh, well, given that that, is the reflection of the popular will, we should <laughs> uh, support whoever has the plurality of the delegates if no one gets a majority and so forth, right? So um, that's just a clear example of where this focus on the popular will uh, as like the third component of populism um, comes into play. So that's all just to say, I think this definition helps us explain like why there are right-wing pop why there could be such a thing as a right-wing populist a left-wing populist so i'll just leave it at that right yeah so that idea of the general will similarly requires some kind of more concrete conception of the good to like fill in the blanks there you know Precisely. like a populist movement has to articulate Precisely. what it sees as this like collective common good towards which we're striving you know and you'll see bernie sanders do this all the mm. time where he's like you know no working person in america should like not be able to afford uh health care should not be able to afford housing right. you know the um, very notion of universal programs that everybody pays in so you know <laughs> okay uh, so everybody has skin in the game. Okay. And it can't be offset by private interest yeah. and so forth. Right. So, okay, just while we're on this mm -hmm. point of populism as a kind of – as a theory and understanding it as this fluid ideology that can be sort of uh, taken up and grafted onto a core set of principles, mm -hmm. like what do you say to the argument that I think has been made – quite a bit about Trump, that Trump is actually not um, kind of the true populist <laughs> in the sense that, yeah. you know, while he may have ran in this direction, as soon as he got into mm. the party, he doesn't really antagonize it mm. in a meaningful sense. He actually goes out of his way to appease each of the core constituencies, mm. you know? Mm. So, oh, the corporate, the corporate donor class gets their tax breaks mm. and uh, the religious right, they get their judges yeah. and, uh, you know, um, the, the hoi polloi of the Republican Party or whatever mm. you want to call them, uh, let's say, get to be 
uh, more avowedly racist in public and so yeah. on. Like the and they, they sort of baptizes each of these uh, each of these groups. And so he actually, while he ran this really contrarian uh, campaign, he very quickly. Um, shifted gears and made alliances and worked towards appeasement rather than taking on this uh, or maintaining this strongly antagonistic uh, directionality? Yes, uh, it's an excellent question. I can't pretend to have, uh, I have not worked out an answer uh, to that yet, uh, you know, in any in any yeah, that's sufficient fair. sort of way. I think- but, I mean, it is, I get, he's being accused of being a faux populist, right? Yeah. And I, I, that's crucial, right? I don't want to minimize that. I mean, it, it's interesting to go, you know, well, then what's the assumption about what true populism is, right? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe it has, I'm just improvising here, but maybe it has something to do with whether whether you merely consider it as a kind of electoral strategy in order to gain power and then, like, in order to attain power. And then when it comes to sustaining or maintaining that power, y- you know, you're no longer... You're no longer interested in the people, right? Um, Whereas the left has resources to argue. (laughs) Like you could frame the question of as like, uh, why is Trump a faux populist, whereas Bernie is a real populist? Although, (laughs) as we'll see in a minute, um, one (laughs) of my primary, if not my primary criticism of the Bernie campaign is that it did not go full populist, right? Um, yeah. So these yeah. are deep waters. I, I'm not really sure how yeah. to answer that. I mean, but again, maybe you could say it's just like an electoral strategy versus like really caring about the public good, you know? I mean, maybe maybe that's yeah. the distinction. Uh, and you I have think, to work that out, though. Yeah. I think there might be as well, like, some point to be made in here that would say something like, well, on the it's possible to make that reconciliation with the elites on the yeah. right because they are not concerned with genuinely thinking through like class differentiation <laughs> mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, like acting in accordance with with genuine class interests, right? right? Mm-hmm. Whereas like on the left, it's very difficult to make those kind of reconciliation, uh, make that reconciliation with uh, the party mm-hmm. when the party so clearly represents uh, class interests which are antagonistic to uh, the interests of the populist movement. And I think just to wrap that, this is kind of what we saw with the Jeremy Corbyn campaign, right? Where it was this kind of populist uh, campaign that they ran that very clearly drew these class distinctions. And then it was so widely uh, hated by the kind of party apparatchiks and uh, by the elites, let's say, who were able to kind of interface well in uh, media circles and so on, that they were able to really like hamstring that campaign. And uh, so I wonder if there is a greater hurdle to overcome there on the left that can't be overcome through this kind of like wheeling and dealing that maybe we saw on the in the case of the right wing uh, populism. Maybe it is a focus on the class struggle because again, when you when, when yeah. you define uh, the elite versus the people distinction on, on economic grounds, yeah, in terms of the one percent versus the ninety nine percent or you know, however you like, it is a qualitatively different endeavor than 
yeah. defining that distinction on grounds other than economic grounds. Again, I, I, I want to do justice to the fact that it's not just like, if you define it on ethnic grounds, that means you're racist. Because, as I said, Evo Morales did this uh, effectively. Um, but you're right. I mean, the focus on the class differential, if you want, is qualitatively different than other approaches. Um, So maybe that's the difference. At any rate, so with that laid out, I mean, this kind of provisional understanding of populism as like a vague ideology that can be molded uh, to suit your purposes. (laughs) So with that, let's enter into my different criticisms of, of the Bernie campaign. So I have three like primary points here, and then there are three kind of extra <laughs> bonus points. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to try to focus on 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 the first three, but we will consider the uh, the other ones as well. So the first the first problem I have here, and it may be the primary problem, is what I'm calling mixed messaging. Throughout the campaign, Bernie has been, on the one hand, saying that this is an anti-establishment, right, anti-elite populist campaign. And on the other hand, we've been flirting with the establishment the entire time, or he has, right? So when he says something like, Joe Biden is the problem, but also, Joe Biden is my friend, (laughs) Okay, we have a rhetorical problem from the very outset, right? You can't say Biden is an existential existential, uh, threat to the working class in this country, and I'm going to support him if he's the nominee. (laughs) Like, you know, um, it might work for you, Bernie, like uh, on the individual level, but in terms of campaign messaging... I don't think it works. I mean, it's this issue of you're trying to please everybody and you end up pleasing nobody. So if you're going to play the outsider, if you're going to claim separation from the elite so that you can claim authenticity or connection to the common people, you need to make that decision and you need to stick by it. Uh, you got to pick one. You, you could either be anti-establishment or you can kind of play the inside game and try to flirt with the establishment. You got to pick one. Trump did. And he became Mm -hmm. the president of the United States. (laughs) Okay. So, I mean, all right. In other words, you know, when, so when I say you need to pick one, like either you can be anti-establishment or not. (laughs) So you have to make that decision. And that's just to say that you have to go full populist, right? Because at least according to what we've said about populism so far, the crucial distinction is between the elite and the people. And so when you confuse that at a rhetorical level, I just don't, it creates this sort of mixed messaging. And I don't think you please anybody that way. Political campaigns are brutal and they are spaces wherein, you know, people are running these, uh, these attacks on one another. They're going to do everything in their power to undermine each other. You know, it is it, these are struggles over power, and so um, they sort of demand that wholesale commitment. And I think that that is 
like you're saying, like Joe Biden, uh, like, for example, in this most recent debate that took place between Bernie and Biden, you know, it's like I felt like Bernie did too much to humanize Biden oh, and yeah. too much to set themselves up as like similar and friendly and too little to draw harsh distinctions, you know? And it's like, it is, it's a performance, it's a performance in these debates. It's a performance when you're, you know, employing these rhetorical strategies in um, campaign speeches at rallies and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. Um, and so it's like, you know, even if you actually feel for Precisely. Biden as a person, yeah. you have to perform as though yeah. <laughs> he's your political enemy, yeah. you yeah. know, and we have to feel that as, as, uh, we have to see ourselves and identify ourselves as the people and not identify ourselves as like people in general. And, you know, Biden has a family yeah. too, or he's whatever. He's a decent it's guy. Like, yeah. 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 And so, far, yeah, it's like, we absolutely cannot be thinking that way if um, you're going to mobilize enough people to force this moment of decision. And beyond which really that, is what I mean, it is. not only is he say, he's my friend, he's a decent guy. Further, he has claimed that, essentially, that he's electable, that he could, yes, oh, I, of course I believe that Biden could beat Trump. Yeah. Excuse me, but <laughs> that's his entire argument. Okay, you're, ba- you're validating the core argument of his campaign, that he's mm-hmm. a decent guy and that he's electable. So, <laughs> like, that's his whole yeah. argument, all right? It so, he, uh, policies aren't relevant, uh, you know, uh, when it comes and to— And they're not. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, we know that policies are relevant only in the most superficial way, right? We know that people vote for other reasons than, like, a, a clear-headed, like, rational analysis of the policy. According to exit polls so far— <laughs> the dissonance that the left is going to have to, you know, deal with is that most people are saying that they support Bernie's policies. So a majority of people support, Medi- uh, support Medicare for all, for instance, and yet they're voting for Joe Biden. So, you know, mm-hmm. how do you square that, right? <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, two answers are, are to say the older generation in particular is voting almost entirely on the basis of perceived electability, right? So what are your priorities? One, beat Trump. Two, beat Trump. Three, beat Trump. Four, beat Trump. Five. And then maybe eventually you get to healthcare and so forth. But, um, <laughs> right. So first of all, there's this electability issue. And the other thing is um, I have not confirmed these these polls, but apparently there are a lot of people who think that Biden supports Medicare for all. Even though he spent the entire campaign rejecting it. So, you know, that's kind of a separate problem about about voter information. But, but the, uh, the first problem about perceived electability versus meaningful platform, right? I mean, what, what Bernie should have been doing for months now is saying, because if we know that Biden's entire argument is electability— which I think is a joke. I mean, I think actually he was probably the least electable out of the candidates, out of the totally. 10,000 candidates that were, on, that were on stage. Anyway, that's the perception. So that's what you have to undermine, okay? And so you can't, you know, <laughs> Bernie can't be there up on stage basically validating, you know, Biden's core argument. Uh, you got to say, you got to marry the meaningful platform meaningful agenda argument 
with the electability argument. That is to say, you need a meaningful platform in order to excite enough people to get off the couch and come vote in November, and especially uh, young people, right? Young people are not going to come out in sufficient numbers to vote for Joe Biden. You know, that's the case. I believe that's the case. And at any rate, that's what Bernie should have been arguing, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. If we know that the only thing holding Biden aloft is perceived electability, why aren't you at every turn trying to undermine that argument? Um, Yeah. And that's a larger point, I'll just leave, leave it at this, about leveraging your base. I mean, Bernie has unbelievable political capital right now. And he is not mm-hmm. leveraging his base properly. For example, it's like, listen, Joe, I might campaign for you if you become the nominee, but I cannot promise that uh, my supporters will vote for you because they're not voting for me on the basis of like who I am or like whether I'm a decent person, although that's important too. They're voting for, for me because of my policies um, and because... and. Also, my strategy in terms of the notion that I have to make like maximalist demands from the outset and not compromise from the outset, right? Uh, So you have to just say, I'm for Medicare for all. You can't be like, well, I don't know. It's not like possible. It's not pragmatic. It's like, (laughs) this is politics. You have to just state your position and then, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe you compromise from there, but you don't like begin by compromising your position and then compromise further. Yeah, exactly. And as well, you want to, you want to force these choices, you know, you want to make, make the moment of voting a moment of decision on a crucial issue, you know, like, uh, and I think, you know, I see people who voted for Biden online saying like, I voted for a return to decency in this country and blah, blah, <laughs> yeah. blah. And it's like, so you know, those are not, make it's, America a, it's great easy again, for maybe. me then to turn around yeah. and say like, You know, it's pretty clear that you chose wrongly on a crucial issue, but I feel like that wasn't made clear enough, this, like, the starkness of the decision. Mm -hmm. And, like, out of of rhetorical level, like, whether or not it's really the case that, like, this policy is going to be dramatically different, if you're interested in getting power, it needs to feel like that, I think, for people in the voting booth, that they would be doing something in a way, like detrimental, harmful to others around them by choosing the opposite choice. Well, indeed, to the people, right? Yeah. Uh. (laughs) Because they're making this argument all the time about not voting for Biden in the general. When you see Bernie supporters coming out now and saying, yeah, I have absolutely no intention of voting for Biden, you know, then all of a sudden this guilt is getting laid on them. Like, oh, you know, you're you're basically voting for Trump, blah, blah, blah. You know, so the same argument gets made every four years. So at some point, we're going to have They're trying to force this this really stark it, yeah. choice lesser of evils yeah. like that there's a duty there's a responsibility mm-hmm. and it's yeah, like by contrast like yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, by contrast like it that should have been the feeling people had that they were doing something treacherous by voting for Biden. Yes. I don't think enough people really had That's that. Well said. Really had that sense. Yeah. And, uh, you, you know? know, you have to be careful, of course, in how you make that case. But you can make that case in a totally appropriate way. Uh, yeah. So that needs to be first and fo- f- foremost uh, on the minds yeah. of the campaign strategists. So, all right. So I think we're sort of tying up this first point about mixed messaging. Yeah. The last point totally. I just want to say about it is 
I guess to conclude this idea of giving up your political leverage, like for no reason and not getting anything in return, Bernie said that he was going to support the Democratic nominee, whoever they were. And that's the crucial clause here. Was it before he even started the campaign? I don't even remember. But months, you know, before any, you know, people started paying attention or uh, so he's the only person who was asked to do that. I mean, Biden was basically never asked to to do that. I, mean, I think he 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 said it for the first time, like in the last debate, <laughs> and it was in a rhetorical ploy in order to get Sanders to sort of back him. But no one else is being asked. Are you going to be? You know, are you going to get in line? Are you going to be a party loyalist? Are you going to? You know. So if you're asked that months before the campaign, the campaign really gets into gear, you have to be able to just push back on that type of question. It's like, you know, are you asking everybody else that question? Are, how about you ask other people if they're willing to get behind me, if I'm the winner, yeah. and then we can talk yeah. about like party unity and so forth. But again, if you're running a legit populist campaign where you're completely an outsider, you you don't even have to pretend like, like no, I'm not a party loyalist. You know what I mean? <laughs> like yeah. F off. Like this isn't you know, like last time I checked, this wasn't supposed to be like totalitarian politics where everybody has to get in line, you know, just because the party said so. But okay. And if you compare that to Trump, if you compare Bernie giving up that leverage right from the outset, right? And it is leverage because basically yeah. like another way you can approach this is to say, well, you know, okay, maybe I'll vote for the nominee, but not regardless of who it is. <laughs> you know, it's like if you, <laughs> let's say, if Biden incorporates my platform, then, you know, and I have guarantees on it in one way or another, then yeah, maybe I will, you know, because this is about the yeah. policies, it's not about the person. But uh, so in that way, it's giving up your leverage, right? If you if you just say, yeah, I'll support whoever the nominee is, you've given you've seeded your political capital, and you can't get it back. Yeah. And if you compare that to what Trump did, right? <laughs> and okay, I fully admit that this is highly problematic, especially in the context of American politics, where you need, you know, if the incumbent president loses or, you know, whichever party loses, it's very important that, uh, you know, they they cede the presidency to whoever technically won. You can, I mean, there's, yeah, there's plenty of problems with not doing that. However, <laughs> remember what Trump did. Right? He was like, well, I don't know if I'm going to support the nominee. The entire political landscape freaked out. Everything was, you know, turned upside down. Everybody was clutching their pearls for weeks, if, if not months. And then eventually, everybody calmed down. They got in line. <laughs> and Trump was inaugurated into the presidency. So again, it's walking a fine line, especially if you're on the left and you can't just like go straight authoritarian without consequences. It's right, but you could do it a different way on the left, yes. right? Like, because you don't want to you don't want to compare it too favorably to Trump I, exactly. here and say that yeah, like that what he did was good or right. Yeah. It's but this question of time, giving up your political leverage. That's what I'm trying to yeah, emphasize. Yeah. yeah, I think, and on the left as well, like. You you make an argument from democracy, you know, uh, and like I think the argument right well now said. is like we do not actually think that it was well democratic that 
Biden is going to be the nominee <laughs> and that uh, we all have to fall in line. Like mm-hmm. that's not where where everything we've been working towards, everything that we've been saying the whole time is just going to be ignored. Like that's not a democratic deliberative process, right? And so I think that's the argument you have to make on the left, whereas on the right he can just like kind of threaten with force and so on and like throw like his his bulk around and that people will kind of fall in line that way. So I, I, I yeah, I do think there are, there are significant differences there yeah. and, and that have that are qualitative and not only like um, sort of symbolic. No doubt. So with that, let's, so that's the, that's the first point about mixed messaging. Yeah. Uh, if you're going to run a populist campaign, you got to go full populist. Uh, you can't play footsies with the establishment, even just as rhetorical strategy. It doesn't help because you end up, you try to please everybody, you end up pleasing nobody. Okay, so the second point I have here is earned media strategy or just, (laughs) I guess, media strategy in general. So the calculation on the part of the Bernie campaign seems to have been uh, something like mainstream media cable news, right? I guess that's what that means. Is that fair to say that mainstream media at this point means cable news? Yeah, cable news and like... The kind of papers of record, you know, you think Washington Post, New York Times, this kind of stuff. Um, So the calculation was something like, all right, mainstream media isn't going to treat us fairly anyway. Uh, So let's focus on organizing instead. What we learned on Super Tuesday is that that doesn't work. (laughs) What we learned is that earn media narrative, this kind of momentum that was generated for Joe Biden, Joe-mentum, right? That, that, <laughs> that that's king. And you cannot cede that ground to the establishment candidates. So no matter how much organizing you do, you can't cede mainstream media to the establishment. You yeah. need to develop a strategy for getting and keeping the attention on you. Like Trump did, except, uh, and this is analogous to the point we just made, you can't, uh, we can't do it in the way that he did, right? I mean, you can't have like all these sleazy corruption scandals and misogynistic (laughs) comments and so forth. I mean, that for obvious reasons is not going to work for a left-wing candidate. So we need to find ways of getting and keeping attention on us, right? Period. Like, I think a way to sum that up is to say that it's better to risk the wrath of the media than to be ignored by it, mainly because they're they're going to accuse you of being, you know, too mean or too impolite anyway. So you might as well get that publicity <laughs> uh, rather than, than be neglected by them, because unfortunately, yeah. there are still a lot of people who... Uh, depend on like cable news and so forth for for their news. Yeah. And the sad part is that like this lesson really should have been learned like that the the media narrative matters in the in in respect to the Corbin campaign ah. as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. You know, where here's a campaign where Corbin was completely unable to get his messaging in mainstream media and he was just constantly slandered as some kind of anti-semite just like nonstop for months and uh he as a result, he was completely trashed, you know? And it's like, if you're uh, a millennial like us and you're on Twitter all the time, it looked like Corbin was going to win, you know? Corbin was absolutely exactly. slaughtering on Twitter. Yeah, left, left but, Twitter becomes a bubble that we need to be hyper aware of. Yeah. 
And uh, so you kind of get this sense like, oh, wow, look at all this momentum. Look at all this, this great campaign that he's running. You know, uh, watch these inspiring ads. And the reality is nobody's seeing that. No, no, none of the kind of the mass of the electorate are, are just getting the kind of Daily Mail headlines and so on that Corbyn is a dangerous anti-Semite, that he's a threat, that he's uh, unbalanced. You know, all this. It's just a, uh, a constant like avalanche of slander. And you know, Bernie was largely ignored by contrast uh, for most of his campaign. And that also had a, it had a similar effect. Like it had this chill. Yeah. And then they all started panicking for a while when he was doing well, but they were very quickly able to capitalize on Biden's like at that time, very small victory and then catapult that into this enormous victory. And it just goes to show how much clout these kinds of uh, legacy media really have the way that they're able to shape the ideological outlook of such an enormous numbers of people and then mobilize them. And especially the older generations. Yeah, I actually thought you were going to say it's tragic because we should have learned it from the last, from the 2016 Bernie campaign. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, all right. So I'll, lots of chances to learn this lesson. Yeah. And, and not so many. For some reason, we have refused to do it. Right. And so, so this is in terms of uh, an earned media narrative strategy, and we just have to be way more savvy at molding that ourselves because otherwise... Yeah it's going to be done for us. The way to do that is basically to say, you, we can't let the narrative be, how are we going to get this uh, fabled moderate Republican, you know, <laughs> these, these, these legendary moderate Republicans to come out and vote for us, right? Like, oh, we have to mm -hmm. uh, lean in to the right a little bit more in order to attract those moderate Republicans. I mean, that's an absurd yeah. strategy. It didn't work in 2016, uh, and it's not going to work in 2020. You have to make the narrative something like my platform is what is going to excite people to get off the couch and come vote in November in the general election. Your platform, Joe Biden, or your like lack of a platform yeah. uh, is not going to excite people to get off the couch and vote, right? And so that already that concerns the, the core issue of electability which is this like protean concept that you really need to define yourself or else others are going to do it for you. Enter yeah. Joe Mentum, okay? <laughs> so again, to sum up, it's better to risk the wrath of the media than to be ignored by it. And okay, so let's leave that. That leave it at that. That's the yeah. Maybe if I could make if I could make one do, final point on Sorry that, for, it's that it actually ties mm -hmm. very well into the first point. Yeah which is that you need to clearly distinguish yourself and, and and stand out because one way to earn media is to say things that seem alarming, that are dramatic, hmm. you know, is to put things in stark yes. terms that like can catch on really yes. quickly, you know, dividing the things up into good and evil. And even if the media will be like uh, caught off guard mm -hmm. or like alarmed by this and say like, oh, I can't believe he would have said something mm -hmm. like that. It's like... At least it'll get them yes. talking about <laughs> it and it gets that yes. message out there, you know, because if you have a clip of Bernie Sanders on CNN or whatever saying like, you know, the people are good, the elites are evil and all the CNN commentators mm -hmm. turn around and are like, oh, I don't know about that, you know, at least the person watching <laughs> mm -hmm. it might be like, you know what, maybe Bernie's actually right about that. Like, at least you showed up in the media and... You know, you kind of get ahead of them if you're putting things in stark terms, if you are creating these clear uh, political distinctions and so and forcing these existential choices. Yes. So it, so it's up to the left in 
the near future to devise, you know, ways to do that. Yeah. Because obviously we can't use the the resources that Trump used, right? Again, which is just like, you know, sex scandals and like sleazy, you know, comments <laughs> and so forth. That's not going to work for us. Mm-hmm. But so we need to find out what will, because it is crucial to get the establishment clutching their pearls at you. And again, it's just about keeping the attention on yeah. you instead of letting them ignore yeah. you, right? Exactly. I mean, it's a fine line because I guess what we're suggesting is that it you do need to focus on sensationalism in a certain way, right? But it just has to be like a like a non like a a non-harmful type of sensationalism, right? It's we have these words like alarmism and so forth. It's like, yeah, you need to just insert yourself into the conversation. And the question is how do you do that in an appropriate way, in a way that would be an appropriate for a left-wing populist to do. All right. So, those are our first two yeah. points. We have it's like, I don't know, mixed messaging is the first problem and then earn media strategy. Like there we just need to be way more savvy. Totally. Um at earn media as opposed to uh, paid media and owned media. You can look up, you can look that distinction up if you want. <laughs> so the, the, the third point here is what I am calling nationalism. <laughs> and this is maybe the most controversial of the points. All, all I mean by left-wing nationalism is that Basically, is that we needed to be talking about FDR and the New Deal way more. <laughs> and so we need to be talking about FDR, more about FDR, and less about Denmark or Finland or Venezuela or Cuba or <laughs> like the Soviet Union <gasps> or whatever, yeah. right? So we need to root the platform in the American story. Okay, you need it to, there's some myth-making that is involved in uh, national campaigns in large-scale democracies. Like, we can't just pretend that that's not the case, in my opinion. So all I mean by nationalism is just, like, rooting the platform, Bernie's platform, in the American story. So let's, why don't we talk about FDR more and, you know, the Denmark model and so forth less, right? So yeah. I think when you root the platform in, in the American story in this way, you have a kind of history teacher-in-chief telling people what the New Deal was and, and that kind of thing. In that way, you're incorporating nationalism and not just internationalism, like international solidarity among the working class and so forth. You're incorporating nationalism into the campaign. Now, Bernie did this at one point early on, but it's not enough to just to do one press conference on democratic socialism, like months before the primaries begin. You need to incorporate this, like, you know, message narrative uh, into the stump speeches, into the interviews, and into the debates. So you need to be like, hammer this repeatedly into the collective psyche so it becomes part of the national discourse. Like, when you're on stage, right, uh, at the debates, like, Bernie just needs to turn to the other candidates and be like, are you on FDR's side or not, <laughs> right? Are you on ML, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., Coretta Scott King, you know, on their side? Like, because they are avowed <laughs> democratic socialists, right? Are you on their side or not, right? <laughs> like, I'm here to complete the New Deal and the civil rights movement, right? And all these other candidates are turning their backs on 
on, that on those movements, on, on the greatest democratic president of the 20th century, FDR, and so forth. And actually, when you talk about greatest democratic president of the 20th century, you, I think, can get some of the party loyalists on your side right. in that way, too, because there are a lot of party loyalists, unfortunately. And so that um, that made me like, so, yeah. I, I wanted to raise an argument at, in this part that is from yeah. like the Toby Buckle and the Political Philosophy podcast. And so he argues that one of Bernie's or one of the failures of the Bernie campaign was that by uh, becoming so like strongly populist in in his reckoning, mm -hmm. they sort of forced this like uh, referendum on Obama, and they uh, set up this situation right. where hmm. they challenged like voters to to say that the Democratic Party as such is like deeply corrupt. And he yeah. thought that this is a mistake because unlike Republicans where that worked to rally the base, Democratic mm -hmm. Democrats didn't hate their last president as much as like the Republicans hated Bush. And so he thought that this was a mistake a by point. trying to like force yeah. this referendum. And I wonder if what you're saying about like rooting it in the rooting the campaign and You in can include Obama in that in that narrative mm -hmm. right it's like we had fdr and you know yeah we had the new deal and then we had the civil rights movement and then it came to a head in the election of obama right? <laughs> I mean, you can if you need to and want to do that yeah. you can incorporate it that yeah. way all right then you might alienate some of the harder progressives or harder le left wingers who you know have a yeah. Highly sophisticated, you know, critique of the Obama administration and so forth. But actually, I think that that type of person would probably would understand incorporating Obama there as 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 part of this. And strategy. you need to, and you uh, can signal to those people. I am one of those people, yeah. and I would understand yeah, it. So. Exactly, and it's <laughs> yeah. like you can signal to those people that, like, hey, this is a strategy. You know, like yeah. this is our yes. way in. Yeah. Like, because you can exactly. use those other media channels that, like, you know, like we can talk about this on left Twitter and shit. And, and yeah. we can talk about this yes. in yes. our own, like, little bubbles in our own little wheelhouse. That, like, mm. what we're doing is, like, employing these rhetorical strategies to bring these other people on side to well make said. our ideology less yeah. alienating to them, such that they will see it as part of this trajectory of, like, that which is best in the American history. And to be clear, uh, the election of – not the Obama administration, mm -hmm. right? But the fact that America got its shit together to the point that in 2008, we elected a black guy with a Muslim name. And not only did we do it, we did it twice. <laughs> so it wasn't an accident. And I mean, that point, I think, cannot be emphasized enough. Like when we talk about the racist American populace, which, you know, there's plenty of it, <laughs> don't get me wrong. But it's easy, easy to like lose sight of how important. OK, put it like this. The election of Obama says something really important about, you know, the American electorate, yeah. if not the American people more generally. And, it, you know, it kind of says more about them than it does about, I don't know, Obama's, like, ideology or policies or whatever, right? And so, you know, and so it's it's not just, like, a bald-faced lie or something to include Obama in that legacy. I mean, 
it was hist- like the election of Obama was historic, like regardless of what he ended up doing. Yeah. <laughs> so we shouldn't lose sight of that. And in that way, again, it's not just a kind of like cynical ploy, you know. All right. So so that's it. So those so those are my like three main my three main points: mixed messaging, earned media strategy, and nationalism by which i simply mean rooting the platform in the american story a la fdr yeah and maybe if i could make one last point about the nationalism thing it also yeah. like just seeing bernie flounder every time he gets asked about castro like he cannot yeah like it's so unnecessary it's so unnecessary you know it's like that's yeah. the kind of question that he's great at redirecting questions when he has a talking point to redirect them to and it just felt yeah. like with those he didn't have that you know and yeah, he would and now we're arguing about yeah. whether it's appropriate yeah. you know to admire like certain policy i mean what like nobody cares yeah. <laughs> like uh, you know and like most american people do right? not know shit about this like <laughs> you know the like the vast majority matter. of the voting public are going to be extremely ignorant about the cuban revolution and the cuban like uh the cuban state like like let us not make this yeah. a referendum about the cuban revolution yeah. please <laughs> thank you you know like obviously i want to hear Bernie come out and say Fidel was a hero of the revolution, but like that's not going to happen. No one's going to get what they want yeah. out of this. Let's yeah. just learn how to he redirect. Comes out these. with the Che Guevara hat on. Yeah, so, like, like no, it's like this is not helpful, people. Yeah, <laughs> okay, exactly. Um, like let's just learn how to redirect that conversation whenever it comes up back to like rooting in this like American trajectory, you know. And yes. Uh, yes, as this part of, like the logic of American history, yeah. like you do need this kind of quasi Hegelian move in there, right? Uh, or, or you know, just to say uh, that with MLK, that the arc of history tends toward justice, right? I mean, that's helpful. It is <laughs> okay. It is uh, whether or not it's true. It's <laughs> actually helpful. I mean, MLK um, was a student of Hegel in many ways, but uh, yeah, he, uh, yeah. It, but again, let's not make it a referendum about Hegel, yeah. right? Let's just <laughs> focus on the New Deal <laughs> and the Civil Rights yeah. Movement. And like, by the way, like that's my platform. So, like, why isn't it your platform, Joe Biden? Like, what the f is wrong with you and the, the neoliberal establishment that has gotten us to this point, that has created the conditions that gave rise to Trump in the first place? So, yeah. you know, okay, yeah, you know, all right, I'll <laughs> I'll stop that rant, but. Why Why isn't this happening on the debate stage? Not just on your Twitter feed, not just giving, you know, a speech via Twitter to mostly people who already agree with you. How are you reaching people who don't already agree with you or are on the fence? And so and that's like, why how are you it is, getting those people yeah, on board? Exactly. And so, but that's also why it's important to signal to like insiders, like people who are already yes. on board with the kind of ideological project that we're seeing in this like new left populism to signal to them like, Hey, this is a strategy that we're employing to reach the democratic electorate. Um, you know, it's a political gamble rather than saying, you know, uh, I sincerely believe in like the true American spirit or whatever. Cause like, yeah, that's yeah. what you're going to, you're good. You are going to lose people on your left flank that way. Because I think a lot of us actually don't believe in the American project and think that it's cynical that MLK is roped in and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. you know? 
I mean, I don't know how many like Native American boats you're gonna get yeah. uh, by, uh, <laughs> but okay. yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's extremely alienating to like a lot of marginalized people that way. Yes. Um, so it's like it's the ability to like strike that balance and to do political strategy like that that can say two things to different groups to get, so that two different groups of people can hear something different out of that. You know, like how do I hear when I listen to it? Like this is a strategic move and how does somebody who's a committed lifelong Democrat here like, Oh yeah. Like he is in fact like the, the new like historical agent in this long trajectory yeah. of the journey to freedom, you know, like yeah. Yeah. you gotta, it, I mean, that is a tough question. Like how do you speak to two people simultaneously mm-hmm. who have these different values? But well, it is the ancient problem or yeah, uh, it's what Plato called, rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it involves this ability to meet people where they're at. You know, basically not expecting people to get on your level, which is this kind of condescending attitude, but rather getting on their level, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the in Buddhism there's a principle uh, I'm not going to pronounce this word correctly, but upaya kaushalya, kaushalya, something like this. You know, you can Google U-P-A-Y-A, and it's this notion, uh, it's kind of like a a hermeneutical principle, a principle of interpretation, where, you know, it's like, well, to this group of people, the Buddha uh, said said this, um, you know, and to this group of people, he kind of adjusted his message to fit the kind of person that he was talking to. And it was all, it was still the Dharma, Mm -hmm. right? But it's just, your rhetorical strategy has to be kind of multi-layered and like tailored to the different groups of people that you want to absolutely. attract. Absolutely. Or uh, to use another religious metaphor, Good. you know, in Islam, there's this idea of like the 99 veils before the face of God, you know, and it's like, yeah. it appeared hmm. depending on how hmm. deep within the, this, uh, uh, within these veils you go, like that face will appear different. You can never gaze on it explicitly and live, but there are these kind of different uh, stages of relation. And I think similarly in politics, that's what you need. You know, you need your core group who are kind of deep in there um, and who have like a certain set of ideological commitments, but you also need to bring along like a larger mass of people and you need to have a kind of veil for them where they they see reflected the, that sense of like hope and possibility that they want for their uh, their own lives, you know? So we need like a multi-dimensional populism, yeah. like a multi-layered populism, yeah. at least uh, in, yeah. as a rhetorical strategy. And yeah, I mean, that just belo- – uh, the, the point about being more savvy at earned media <laughs> kind of belongs to that to that point. Okay, so those are my three main points. We've, we've already uh, taken up a lot of time here. So I think what, what I'm going to do is just say the last three points uh, very quickly. Uh, if you want to discuss them, we can. Uh, but then we can you know, move into a kind of concluding discussion of the viability of electoral politics. Because all of these points are... Center around that question. Yes, recommendations uh, or prescriptions, actually, for left-wing electoral politics, primarily in the U.S., but uh, I think they're actually generally applicable. So my last three points here, um, 
two of them are somewhat more arcane, like tactical points. Um, so the first one is just the failure to to do ads against Biden in Super Tuesday states. I mean, this is when people still thought that Joe was out of the race. This is when there was still a bunch of candidates still in the race before they had, you know, before Pete Buttigieg got the call from Obama and dropped out and then Klobuchar dropped out. And then they all, the establishment consolidated around the establishment candidate and the <laughs> progressive, let's call them that, uh, candidates uh, failed to consolidate around the progressive front runner. And, you know, this the, the fact that they failed to do ads against Biden in Super Tuesday states, you know, is, is kind of symptom. It's like political malpractice. And I, it's symptomatic of, of this larger problem that they were just not willing to drive the nail in the coffin. So, you know, nobody was really willing to really take Biden out on stage. I mean, Kamala Harris had had the moment, the busing moment. Um, it didn't even hurt Biden that much apparently but I mean yeah you you just have to be willing to drive the nail in the coffin and they were never willing to and so you know Biden emerged <laughs> from the coffin and now he's the presumptive front runner um so that's a, a massive tactical failure that borders on it just is political malpractice that they failed to do that uh the second point out of my final three here so the fifth point overall is that there was a failure to get Jim Clyburn to withhold his endorsement uh, in South Carolina, as they did with Harry Reid in Nevada. Again, this is a bit of an arcane tactical point, but once it became clear after Nevada that young people were not turning out in sufficient numbers, which was the Bernie kind of campaign strategy, the campaign should have adju adjusted its strategy. They should have used the week between Nevada and South Carolina to to get the endorsement of certain establishment figures, or at least get them to withhold their endorsement of anybody, or Biden in this case, uh, so that uh, so they should have got their endorsement so that voters who care about that sort of thing, party loyalists and that kind of thing, uh, that they would feel permission to vote for them. That, unfortunately, is a, a larger problem uh, that a lot of people are just sort of waiting for permission to, to vote for someone. Like, you know, whoever cable news says can beat Trump, that's the that's the guy I'll, or gal I'll uh, go for, right? Uh, we cannot underestimate how many people there are like, I mean, mo like most of the electorate isn't very ideological one way or the other. <laughs> and that's something that we massively underestimated and we, we can't do that again. Um, but, you know, that's a relatively arcane, like I've said, tactical point that wouldn't even arise if the overall strategy had been clearer in the ways that we've been enumerating, especially those first three points about mixed messaging or media strategy and nationalism. And so I'll just conclude with this final point, which is don't let Trojan horses into the progressive movement. You know, it turns out, though I'm, you know, I hate to say it, but the Warren campaign turned out to be a Trojan horse for the progressive left in terms of movement politics, right? Like, sorry, Liz and Bernie, like, it's not about Bernie. Like, it's not about Warren. It's, a, it's about the progressive movement. <laughs> and, you know, you need to know who your allies are in that regard. And 
that you know which versus which people are just using the mantle of progressive movement politics in order to advance their own personal careers so i would just say don't we you know we can't let trojan horses into the progressive movement anymore you got to quash them early and definitively like we can't wait until weeks before like the week before the first primary in order to maybe start criticizing like you know certain candidates yeah. uh and in a very kind of it's ineffective tough it's way. tough you know because i think That's a lot of people point. were confused by the uh, fair uh, hostility towards warren that they felt from a lot of bernie supporters mm. like that that was yeah, really confusing, I think, for a lot of folks who like saw who who when they looked mm. at them, they didn't see them as being like so clearly distinguished. Whereas again, like yes. Yes. in terms, of, in their terms policies, of their policies, whereas right. again, like people who are more kind of embedded in the ideology of the whole Bernie campaign, for them that difference is very stark. Yeah. You know, they saw Warren yeah. as compromised, as establishment. But I wonder, mm. like, I I think the way things have played out, it meant that. Warren really became a huge stumbling block and attacked Bernie in some incredibly yeah. like uh unnecessary ways and that that were surprising to see honestly like it, I I was surprised yeah, by that yeah, as well we all, we all were and so yeah actually that's a good point that we kind of all were I mean maybe there are some people who have been very cynical for and I mean I was hostile to I was willing to sort of give her the benefit of the well, doubt on some me stuff me too and like, no, even though even though I mind. was uh, even though yeah. I was pretty hostile to her early on because yeah. of the stuff around uh, the DNA test and these these false claim to be Cherokee undermining yeah. tribal sovereignty by pretending like you know whether you're Native American gets determined on the basis of your DNA which is like literally the premise of eugenicism because yeah. if that's the case. Then we can just breed you out of existence. Yeah, exactly. Right, and so, so that's why it matters yeah. that Native American people are the people who determine who is Native American. Okay, it's not your fucking DNA. Excuse me. Uh, that's like <laughs> literal racism. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's yeah, why early on, cool, I was guys. I was personally Sorry. like quite hostile to Warren, you know, because yes. like yeah. I was just had been following that stuff and that whole story, yeah. and I was like, well, there's no way someone who thinks that this is a legitimate thing to have <laughs> people done people who care so much about identitarian politics, yeah. there's no way they would overlook this. Right? Yeah. Oh, exactly. <laughs> turns out they don't really care because it's all about kind of class solidarity among like primarily upper middle class like liberals and like. It's actually like primarily white, upper middle class liberals too. But you know, all right, all right. Uh, but but this is it. Anyway, this is our this is our hostility like coming out. Where yeah, yes, we're hostile. Precisely. Like we are. Yes, yes. But that said, yeah. I was willing to give the benefit of the doubt because <laughs> I saw so. I saw the yeah. potential of like Warren as like a uh, uh, like a VP kind of position. You know, yeah. as somebody, getting a lot of uh, as somebody who could be that be comfortable. Yeah, Bernie. who yeah. could be that bridge to more like establishment Democrats like groups and so on kind of like be that seat at the table for them you know and so because like it, it seems odd to me it's not like people who are supporting Pete Buttigieg and shit like what like they are openly hostile to Warren like no they probably are largely supportive of Warren you know so it's like I, I saw her as maybe that like someone who could be that like bridge as well bridge like kind of like figure. we're yeah and it's like oh well maybe she could be like a productive ally in that way but instead she just like really like pulled up the drawbridge and like made or that if her she decision. was the front runner i mean yeah. like you know at a certain point it's like well 
you cut, you know, so, so, some point you have to rally around the front runner, right? If you care about the movement and not just like your personal career, right? Okay. Uh, and so like, this is the way I have always pitched this. And maybe this is the way that the movement itself needs to pitch this kind of argument. It's like, listen, if Bernie and Warren had the same policies, or at least the difference was just negligible, um, then yeah, it's t yeah, then it's time for a slightly younger and it, indeed a woman. It's time. Let's get that done. Yes, right? If 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 the if the platform is the same, yes. Sorry Bernie, let's get a younger woman to do it. This is where we, this is, you know, no question that's the way we need to go. Except the premise is false. <laughs> right? They don't. They did not have I mean even from the get-go they had different platforms. And then it just became clearer and clearer. I mean, as she backtracked on Medicare for all, I mean, we should never forget the primary, uh, according to polls, the pri primary issue on Democratic voters' minds is health care. Also, a majority of them support Medicare for all. Elizabeth Warren backtracked on Medicare for all. That's when she fell in the polls. She never recovered after that point. So... <laughs> While there are many other factors that prevented her from succeeding, yes, including sexism, just as anti-Semitism, you better believe, was a factor in, you know, Bernie's, like, lack of success, I am not here pretending like it was the main cause, right? I'm admitting that the Bernie campaign made plenty of mistakes and that we need to learn from that, right? So we, can, all right. So, so, okay, that's one argument. And the second argument, again, it's just that if they had the same platform, of course I would go. But if it comes down to the question of a candidate being accountable to a certain group that they are supposed to represent versus a candidate just being a member of that group, but not necessarily being accountable to them, <laughs> right? I will choose accountability over group membership any day of the week. Although it is, it would be ideal if you had someone who is both a member of a certain group and accountable to that group, yeah. right? So whether the group is uh, race or gender or class, right? Um, that argument applies, I would say, right? Like, in other words, it's better to have someone whose policies are feminist in the sense that they concretely advance the emancipation, like, of that group, right? Versus just tokenism, right? Like, it's better to have group accountability than simply identity tokenism, right? Like, it's tokenism when there isn't also that accountability. So the question of, like, who's a better feminist, Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders, right? You can talk about, like, well, who's the woman? But you can also talk about, like, whose policies are most suited to advance the cause of feminism, right? In which case, you know, there's a good argument to be made that Bernie is the better feminist, right? Although it would be better if Hillary Clinton had Bernie's policies and was also a woman, right? Like that would be better, I would vote for her. So that's the only principle that I'm talking about here is that like, listen, if their policies were the same, then yes, let us do that kind of it's technically called like moderate affirmative action, right? Um, it, it's a sort of affirmative action argument. But if I have to choose between, you know, <laughs> K 
accountability to a group and mere group membership, regardless of accountability, I'm going to choose accountability. I know that's an abstract argument, but I think it makes sense, right? Okay. Okay. Cool. Let's so let's kind of leave that there as like those are my prescriptions for mm-hmm. the failures of Bernie's campaign, but no, uh, and the the main three being mixed messaging, earned media strategy, and nationalism. Mm-hmm. And we should now recognize that this entire argument is relative to electoral politics, and it yeah. assumes the uh, viability of electoral politics. So now I think we should take a step back and ask the very dangerous, though crucial, question about the viability of electoral politics. And of course, what is crucial about electoral politics is in a democratic uh, state, mm-hmm. uh, at least nominally, right, <laughs> is legitimacy, okay? Because the normal counter-argument for working outside of, Demo- uh, outside of uh, electoral politics is that if you want to gain power in a way that is beyond the electoral system, it's very easy for you to kind of slip into kind of like anti-democratic politics, or at least that's the the objection, right? You're being anti-democratic by not participating or by trying to work outside of the electoral system. Right. But that argument in turn assumes the basic democratic legitimacy of the, what in the case we're talking about are capitalist states, you know? That's so right. when we're talking about the United Kingdom, we're talking about Canada, we're talking about the United States, we're talking about a strong, like old uh, capitalist states, often settler colonial states in the case of at least two of those, you know, so like whose own democratic legitimacy is something that they've had to work very hard to construct. And that is constantly being undermined by um, their capitalist character, their ownership by the capitalist class, their subservience to capitalist interests. So if we have kind of like a- Profit margins as the, well, uh, you know, the profit margin reigns supreme. Yeah. So if we have Everything sort of this to be subordinate. this like principled anti-capitalist stance, I think that we at least have to have that discussion where we say that the legitimacy of these states themselves is actually in in question. And yes. if we want to be, you know, exiting capitalism in some meaningful sense, if you want to be building some kind of alternative, some kind of, you know, socialist alternative. Right? <laughs> Dare I say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, if we want to be doing that, then maybe like subjecting ourselves over and over to the, the kind of political theatrics um, <laughs> of like deeply illegitimate and non-democratic states is not a very useful activity. And so what, what Especially do I, when our time frame is so our, – our window of opportunity is so small if you believe climate scientists, exactly. right? If you take the IPCC report yeah. seriously. Exactly. Like we're looking at like ecological collapse on this really kind of large scale, you know, and I think a lot of us feel that anxiety like deeply within us. And it's like mm-hmm. when we see something like the Bernie campaign fail, like, you know, Shut a lot on. of people talked about it as like – Oh, this was our last off-ramp before apocalypse, you know, was a term that I was hearing thrown around. And it's like, which is, I think, frames it, frames it well and shows the way that 
while we are still want to have democratic legitimacy for our movements, maybe like these kind of elections are not the source of that sort of legitimacy. And so, I, I mean, really the argument I'm putting forward here positively, not just critically, positively. yeah, not just yeah. critically of, um, of electoralism is an argument for some kind of dual power. You know, I'm talking about like building other sorts of institutions outside of formal state structures that can grow and like creating these, these complex ecosystems of non-capitalist forms of relation that will continue to, um, evolve and develop you know, going forward, like, uh, at least for me, like watching these big electoral failures of the left in recent years has really kind of pushed me away from investment in that electoral system. Obviously, I'm still like libidinally invested in it. You've heard me get quite passionate <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, over the course of this discussion. You know, uh, I have a lot of feelings about that. I think it would be important to try and disentangle ourselves from that libidinal investment and instead see it as part of a larger strategy with an anti-capitalist horizon and really mm-hmm. start to build up that movement which uh, includes these forms of like cooperative organizing, which includes like uh, community uh, development and solidarity, you know, whether those are struggles for housing, like food security, justice struggles, you know, that we've seen. So like the activism piece comes in there as well. Like those are all avenues for the left to like build uh, significant power. And so I, even just to step back to the populism stuff we were talking about at the beginning. And uh, one of the examples that Alex brought up is um, Evo Morales. And Evo Morales is an excellent example, you know, and is a brilliant leader if it weren't for the fucking brutal imperialist states uh, like uh, so-called Canada. Uh, <laughs> we would you know. rather have Sig Heiling, like literally Sig Heiling fascists in there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So, because we like to promote democracy. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> our foreign policy is clearly about uh, democratic values. Dude, yeah, again, just democracy just... promotion, man. <laughs> Get yeah. in line and shut up. Yeah, yeah. which again reflects <laughs> reflects back on the like so called democratic character of these of these imperialist states. You know, like uh, it's pretty obvious that that is a way in which they are losing they lose legitimacy around the world. Like when Canada and the U.S. like stage these coups, that is. <laughs> That erodes their their claims to be democratic on a fundamental yeah. ethical level, you know, and I think yeah. people need to like kind of get wise to that. But I brought up Evo because he was precisely this kind of populist who comes out of a movement which was originally about strong community organizing, community solidarity in those uh, indigenous movements in Bolivia and and beyond, you know, there was international solidarity there as well. That is an avenue to power. And so that he came to the election in the first place already from a strong position with like this movement at his back. And there's a certain like strength and momentum that comes to there. So while the election was still the way in which he claimed power, it's not the way in which he built power. And so when we invest so much in building power through uh, political electoral campaigns, are we just throwing that energy into the void, as it were, instead of meaningfully organizing outside these formal parties? And I think to me, that's like, as a Canadian, this is like really obvious because 
none of the parties here look like they're remotely uh, capable of supporting a left platform at all, you know? And it's not as though anyone is suggesting that we should, uh, as leftists, be organizing to overtake the Liberal Party of Canada. Like, yeah. no one thinks that that's true, you know? Uh, yeah. It's like you pretty much have to organize outside of these formal structures here if you actually have this anti-capitalist horizon in, in mind. Whereas a Bernie campaign is a little different. You know, he says, uh, I am a socialist. I'm, I'm advocating for socialism. We're going to move in the, this, this socialist direction. And that's a signifier. And that's a rallying cry. But I wonder how meaningful it is in terms of the way well, it's he's cashed built, out. Yeah, he's built a massive, you know, grassroots uh, a social movement, right? I mean, like, not just a political campaign, but a social movement. If we can distinguish, like, the spheres of the family and society, uh, like, civil society, and then politics or, or government, right? Or the state. I think Evo Morales is a perfect kind of example, uh, or provides some kind of model uh, for what people in North America might might aspire to. According to this book that I brought up earlier, Populism, A Very Short Introduction, they, uh, the, the authors claim that Eva Morales sort of uniquely combines the three types of populist mobilization, th which are personalist leader, a social movement, and then party politics. So uh, if I can just quote very quickly here, they say, Eva Morales is a personalist populist leader who is strongly connected to social movements that opposed neoliberal policies and fought for a better representation of ethnic groups in the 2000s. Morales was elected president of the country in 2006, and the political party behind him, Movement Toward Socialism, MAS, has close relationships with these social movements. At the same time, MAS is a strong political organization which, despite its loyalty to Morales, has different factions and an institutional structure across the whole country. Important tensions exist between the three types of populist mobilization in the country. For example, at certain times, social movements have forced Eva Morales to change his position on specific reforms. Uh, and while he continues to be the undisputed leader of the party, <laughs> again, they wrote this in 2017, <laughs> debate is ongoing within the party about who should replace him in the near future. Mm -hmm. There's an analog with Bernie. Yeah. But um, yes, is it fair to say, Keegan, that what you're suggesting is that the left needs to focus way more on civil society, I mean, as it used to be called, right? Social movements uh, relatively independent of the political sphere or, or government or even like party politics. Yeah. In order to generate enough pressure or outside leverage to force party politics to do what they want. I mean, yeah. is that is that kind of the art? Like, without that, you need the inside game and the outside game, but without the outside game, <laughs> you know, you can't, you have no leverage, you have yeah, no pressure. exactly. And uh, I guess, so Bernie has, in effect, created a massive grassroots social movement that is, like, independent of the Democratic Party and political structure, which is one of, which is the reason that it's so paradoxical that a guy who is not even i mean as everybody says you know he's not even a democrat or whatever and it's like yeah that's why most people like him because most <laughs> people hate the hate the, the republican and the democratic establishment right yeah. it's like fuck the establishment right and so that's why you need a populist person to like 
you know, get that sentiment and to translate it into, you know, meaningful <laughs> political outcomes. So um, here's a good example. I, Crystal Ball at the uh, at Rising at the Hill suggested this, and I th- I agree with this idea, but I think it's an example of what we're talking about. Um, she suggested that this was actually before the debate against Biden, and you know. Ideally, Bernie would have done this and then talked about this while he was on the debate stage. She suggested that Bernie use this social movement that he has behind him that is independent of the party structure, the burn app (laughs) and all the different, you know, texting, all all the different avenues um, to get people during the coronavirus, Bernie supporter, especially kind of like young people who have uh, (laughs) whose immune systems like enables them to take this kind of risk, although no doubt it is risk to to get his supporters in that social movement active and like bringing supplies to old people's houses, you're like leaving it outside the door, (laughs) you know, not knocking on the door. Uh, you know, there there aren't too many people who would be super pleased to have like random strangers knocking at their door right now, <laughs> you know, but right. But like engaging his base, engaging yeah. that social movement that he has effectively constructed and that, you know, for better or for worse, Trump has also constructed, but he's way more of an estate. He's like ensconced in the establishment now. And so he doesn't. And I would say he always was. But I mean, OK, we can have that argument. Yeah. So this this would be it. Like, because yeah, right now so that's that, an example of what could be done. Yeah. Like right now, that social movement that Bernie has constructed is oriented around like a, 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 trying to win an electoral victory, which they probably will not win, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like that. Yeah. Energy, because they're not sort of embedded in like community structures and organizations that have goals beyond that electoral horizon, like mm-hmm. that, I think a lot of that energy is going to dissipate. And a lot I of those. Think you put your finger on it there. Yes, because, okay, we have to give, we have to do justice to this because he does have massive community structures. I mean, that's what we're talking about. We have a social movement that is, in effect, ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Like, like, you know, but it's not being leveraged. I mean, yeah. imagine, imagine if Bernie had gone on stage and be like, oh, by the way, we're, uh, we've created the, you know, anti, the, the pandemic response core, yeah. uh, out of my, you know, and it's, and I have this social movement behind me that you, Joe Biden, do not have. And by the way, that's why you're going to lose the election against Trump yeah. because you're facing a actual right wing populist who, you know, unfortunately has a massive grassroots, but I mean, uh, and the the proof of that, by the way, is that the amount of individual donations they're making, they are taking corporate money and so forth, but they are also generating Ranking an unbelievable in. amount yeah. of just grassroots donations. And like we, you know, we on the left, like wish it wasn't so, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that's because in large part because we dropped the ball. And so we need to take that seriously and deal with it uh, and not ignore it. <laughs> And we need but, to be interfacing point, with those yeah. uh, with those community organizations that do support those people too. You know, it's like yes. uh, yeah. like which are primarily churches, right? Yes. it's like primarily on the yes. right social like, institutions. Yeah, yes. they, the right is very fixated on and social institutions on on uh, building robust social institutions that can hold people together, that bind, they that tie people up in these community bonds, and so on and yeah. so forth. And, um, like, that doesn't exist on the liberal left. And it 
it it can exist on the proper like anti capitalist left, mm-hmm. but it is something that you have to want and it's something that you have to build, you know. And so while I think it exists to an extent in isolated pockets, it's like you know really like breathing life and like giving that nourishment into that ecosystem such that it starts to grow outside of the bounds yes. of uh, the I- existing capitalist economy. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I think you put your finger on it before uh, because I guess what I've been saying is that there exists already (laughs) infrastructure. Like there already exists this social movement that can be activated at the touch of a button, uh, literally, actually. You know, Bernie just has to make the call and we're, you know, we're there, right? But as you said, the so it exists, but it's not oriented. I mean, it's oriented toward electoral politics exclusively, as far as I can tell. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, maybe I'm wrong. We'll be happy to have, to be... uh, Proven wrong. Proven wrong there. But it's almost as if the primary thing is a kind of... It needs to be repurposed. Yeah. And then, yeah, you also need to keep building it, right? But I don't want to give the impression that, like, oh, my God, we now have to start from scratch, right, and, like, build a social movement. You know, we can say that from our apartments, you know, uh, sort of bunker down, quarantine (laughs) in our apartments, sending out this kind of dispatch to the left, you know, where, like, people aren't even allowed to meet in groups of, like, 10 or whatever the hell it is at this point. But, But it's, like, the point is, like, it's already there. And it, and you need to keep building it, sure. But crucially, it kind of needs to be repurposed. Yeah. Right. Or at least not exclusively focused on electoral politics. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I, I mean, that's our prescription, yeah. I suppose, Absolutely. beyond electoral politics to the left. Right. So the first part of uh, this podcast was 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 dedicated to getting the diagnosis of the Bernie campaign right so we can get the prescription right Mm -hmm. when it comes to the left engaging in electoral politics. But we also have to take a step back and (laughs) diagnose why the left has just failed at electoral politics. Mm -hmm. And maybe the solution there and the prescription is to look beyond electoral politics, not to forget about it, right? But to repurpose the social movement that is already in place at this point. And I mean, that will only redound to the benefit of electoral pol- of, of left-wing electoral politics, right? Because mm-hmm. like I said, but let's say Bernie had got this kind of pandemic core response unit going before the debate. Then he goes on the debate stage. They're like, what are you going to do about coronavirus? And he's like, well, let me tell you, right? Yeah. I got a social movement. This clown ain't i <laughs> right and like it's and then you can say okay? we are already doing x y and z not yes, like we're already doing like it and by I'm... the way that's why we're electable yeah people like that yeah. that's the whole argument like you that's basically undermines biden's entire raison d'etre right yeah. it's like it's like that's it you know don't validate it undermine it bernie yeah. like you know i mean that's an obvious and draw the prescription but so there you go i mean <laughs> we need to do it. <laughs> it's uh, and maybe my concluding comment will be this, and then I'll let you wrap up your thoughts. Crystal Ball again, I think, got this right when she said Bernie has effectively won the ideological battle. We have 
completely shifted the Overton window. We have set the parameters of the debate. It's like, are you for Bernie's policies or not? Like, that's the debate right now. Um, even during the coronavirus, I mean, at this point, the question is like, well, like, how many of Bernie's policies are we going to enact? <laughs> and like, in what time frame? <laughs> right? Like, that's yeah. the debate right now. <gasps> but um, what we've, we've won the ideological battle. But that's half the story. The mm-hmm. other half is winning power. Why can't we do that? All right. All right. So we have presented in this podcast, yeah, very, our, our various diagnoses of the problem and then the, prescri- the, 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 the solutions. Um, and it might also, it, it may well end up include looking beyond electoral politics itself to, to look at how we can develop a robust civil society uh, and get independent external pressure on the political sphere. Yeah. So maybe some takeaways here would be it's important to think about electoral politics, but to couch it within a larger horizon of an anti-capitalist politic, you know? And so I, it's like we have to see that as one of many strategies that are at play um, in order to like clearly think about moving away from the modes of production and the modes of relation that exist in our uh, social order uh, at this time, right? And so it's like, is the state gonna? Are we gonna need yeah. state action to like get there eventually? Yes. Is the state, um, you know, right now a profound obstacle to anything like an anti-capitalist politics? Also, yes. You know, so it's like this is that kind of really difficult paradox that um, you're running up against when you're running left electoralism. And so it's like I think even the kind of Bernie social democracy type model is at its strongest when it is the – political arm of like the labor movement, the political arm of these larger social movements, right? And and so that's the way we need to see these electoral strategies, not as like the core of of a robust left politic writ large. Mm -hmm. So to sum up, would you agree (laughs) would you agree with the summary of the foregoing? Mm -hmm. When it comes to electoral politics, at least in the United States, but probably just in general, but all right, when it comes to electoral politics, the left needs to go full populist. When it comes to (laughs) politics beyond electoral politics, when it comes to freedom and saving the planet (laughs) as a condition for human freedom, (laughs) we need to go full anti-capitalist. Or at least it that populist electoral strategy needs to be understood in terms of the larger class struggle yeah right and the and ultimately anti-capitalism yeah absolutely i don't see any way around that conclusion at this point uh, (laughs) in our history awesome so uh let's, let's leave it at that let's yeah let's leave it there let's wrap it up uh so if you have made it with us this far through this conversation uh thank you so much <laughs> you're a champ yeah <laughs> you're a real leftist you are part of the the real people as opposed to the dirty the elites. elite <laughs> yeah the corrupt elite That's yeah right. exactly you, you, you're officially the people <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
Um, but no, we really appreciate you. And, um, you know, if some of what we've said today has kind of resonated with you, uh, if you thought, or if you thought we were completely wrong about something, yes. we would love to hear from you. you it's know. almost more interesting if you disagree. Yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, hit us up on Twitter at the Poplar Tapes. Uh, we also have an email, thepoplartapes at gmail.com. And as well, if you have liked what you heard or found it valuable in some way, we would really appreciate it if you would share it with your friends, share it on social media. Uh, that will just help us kind of grow the podcast overall and continue to have these kinds of discussions. So, um, yeah. So thank you, Alex, for uh, having this wonderful conversation with me. It's been a lot of fun. It has. Thank you, Keegan. All right. Well, have yourself a lovely day there, friend. Take care, everybody.